You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Rebecca Weintraub, Director of Vaccine Delivery at Ariadne Labs, Mansi Kinsal, Product Manager at Google Health, and John Brownstein, Chief Innovation Officer at Boston Children's Hospital. This call was recorded at 12 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, June 10th. Dr. Weintraub, do you have any opening remarks? Sure, I'm pleased to start us off and thrilled to be here with my collaborators on the call who are going to correct me <laughs> en route. Um, but just to start us off with the problem statement, which we, I think we all know well, and especially the reporters on the call today, is that our state and local leaders, all the jurisdictions that are distributing the vaccine, continued to confront uncertainty about how to help those that are unvaccinated overcome barriers, including geographic distance. And across the nation, it is clear that there are vaccine deserts, the areas where people have limited access to COVID-19 and they're persisting today. So while we know from vaccines.gov that there are 50,000 plus vaccination sites, we also know that there's over 20% of people in the United States who do not live within five miles of the locations where the vaccines are made available. So we're in this precarious state. While supply clearly outweighs demand, we know the variants are circulating. After cresting at over 2 million folks on April 13th, the number of people receiving their first dose of the vaccine each day has plummeted. And Biden's goal to vaccinate 70% of Americans by July 4th will mean iterating on local strategies to ensure we reach all communities. The unvaccinated face greater risks with the variants in circulation. So we're looking forward to having a discussion today about the Vaccine Equity Planner developed by Ariadne Labs, Boston Children's Hospital, with Google is a free public tool designed to help public health planners and providers identify areas where access to COVID-19 vaccines is limited and aid in identifying promising sites to open up these areas. The tool is powered by vaccines.gov data of active COVID-19 vaccination sites combined with geospatial data and travel times provided by Google. The tool also overlays millions of data points on the map of the country to identify areas of limited vaccine access. Leaders can model where to put new sites, taking into account travel time, social vulnerability, the number of unvaccinated people in an area, and changes in vaccine confidence. Across the vaccine deserts in the United States, there are about 4,200 health-related sites that could potentially offer vaccines, such as primary care health centers, federally qualified health centers, and pharmacies. Our tool can answer the following questions. Where is access to the vaccine limited? How do we improve access for vulnerable communities? How do barriers change when individuals do not have access to cars? How do barriers to vaccination differ across counties? And are there potential sites to open within these low access areas? The leaders that we're interfacing with face a question, not only where are the unvaccinated, but how do they lower the fence today, improve confidence in the vaccine and protect us all from the variants in circulation? Advancing vaccine equity is a key strategy to limit viral transmission and mitigate the consequences of this global pandemic. I, I will pass the baton to John, Dr. Brownstein, who's been my colleague in arms throughout this development of the vaccine allocation plan, uh, vaccine equity plan. John. Yeah, no, thanks, Rebecca. And I think, you know, you've basically um, covered everything. You know, we've been running uh, a tool called vaccinefinder.org uh, uh, for, for many years, actually, um, 
Google started it uh, eight years ago, nine years ago with H1N1 pandemic. And we've been working with CDC to build tools to support uh, consumers accessing the vaccine. We've that product transitioned to vaccines.gov. It's been the, sort of the main resource for um, the country to figure out where to get uh, COVID vaccines in the population. The challenge um, with that tool is that it is not necessarily a level playing field for all of the population. There are um, incredible deserts that create situations in which um, certain populations are favored for access uh, and certain populations are uh, unfavored. So ones would be medically uh, vulnerable populations, uh, disadvantaged populations, minority populations, rural populations. And this is through the data that we've been pulling together as part of the vaccines.gov effort. It also represents an opportunity for us to really fully understand where gaps in the existing network are. And with vaccineplanner.org and the vaccine equity planner, um, essentially, this is a tool to help optimize the network and fill in the important gaps that exist. Um, and especially as we head towards this July 4th milestone of trying to get 70% of adults with at least one shot, the only way we're gonna get there is with a ground game of, of essentially deploying vaccine in, in populations that are in low access. And we recognize the fact that while vaccine hesitancy is an issue and there's many people in the wait and see category, the combination of, of vaccine hesitancy and access can't be ignored. And if you can improve access through you know, optimization of the network, you can get people from the wait and see category into the immunized category. So this is really the attempt of what we're trying to do here with this tool and to support our uh, public health colleagues that are, have been challenged in terms of resources um, to essentially work to essentially improve how they're delivering vaccines to the community. I don't know if Manzi want to add anything from the Google front. For sure. Uh, thanks, John. Uh, so yeah, so at Google, we are very excited to be part of this initiative. Uh, throughout the pandemic, Google has been working to support uh, consumers and public health with information that can help decision making. And we see a huge potential for us to be able to help mitigate access issues. Um, and so we are very excited about providing the data set that computes travel times to vaccine uh, vaccination sites and to power the vaccine equity planner tool. Uh, excited. Great. Thank you, everyone. Um, first question. Go ahead. Hi, I just wanted to ask you guys um, about a similar issue globally. Um, as you know, the US just announced it will buy millions of Pfizer doses for lower income countries. But as we know, that's just the first step. So I'm wondering what you guys think about actually. Um, and what does COVAX need to do or the US need to do? What can countries do to make sure those shots get there? Um, or is that really up to the countries themselves? That is a great question. I'll start and pass it to John in a moment if that's helpful. Uh, so, I mean, first, I think there's tremendous lessons from what we just learned in the United States as all countries will initially face vaccine scarcity and they'll be facing a portfolio of vaccines. So not only the mRNA vaccines, but the Johnson & Johnson vaccines that will likely be donated. And so how do you plan and prepare for allocation of different vaccines to subpopulations considering um, the diversity um, within each country. So I think there's actually many lessons we've learned um, from thinking about planning for the allocation of the COVID-19 vaccines at the country level and how to help ministers of health, for example, plan and prepare for vaccine scarcity 
when demand is high and supply is low. And then the phase that we're in right now where supply is stable in the US, but you're trying to in a sense improve demand and confidence. The second piece of your question, I apologize, Austin, I missed you for a moment, but I think there's also an important piece here for that we hope COVAX will be leading to secure vaccine supply for the health workers. So there's 50 million healthcare workers across the, the globe, and we know our health workforce is unfortunately at the front lines of um, and vulnerable to COVID-19. And so there's many folks working on the modeling of how to get the vaccine to protect the workforce so the workforce can then stabilize um, access and care for the general population. Um, and I actually hope that the tools that we've created for the United States will be models and prototype for many other countries and eager to work with this collective team that we're on the call with today uh, for other countries. John, I'll pass it the yeah, time I mean, to I you. think you, you, you really covered it. I mean, there, there are, of course, plenty of lessons to be learned, uh, both through sort of the, the successful parts of the rollout, but then also some of the challenges we clearly have recognized as part of the rollout that... Um, while we were able to get a you know deal with you know a huge amount of demand initially, that didn't necessarily uh, that wasn't necessarily rolled out in the most equitable way. And this is why you know with Vaccine Planner, uh, we are attempting to make sure that we are considering vaccine deserts and access and how that um, links to social vulnerability. And I think so. What we're trying to do, of course, is is bring this tool. We're actually having conversations with with other ministers of health to think about how they can bring in a tool that considers equity from the beginning. You know, clearly, part of the rollout did consider these issues, but there were, there are incredible gaps as well. And we know that, unfortunately, uh, populations that are that are need greatest access are probably also the ones that suffer the greatest consequences of this virus. So. You know, I think your your question is absolutely right. It's great to secure, you know, that huge number of doses that will, you know, make a significant dent in our ability to control the pandemic. But if those doses aren't delivered in equitable ways, and um, then you know, we will not necessarily be successful in, in in bringing this pandemic to a close in any rapid sense. So, you know, that's a really great question. I don't know if any. Yeah. Do you have a follow up? Thank you. Yeah, just quickly, um, do you guys think we know that there's at least hundreds of thousands of Johnson & Johnson doses that, that may expire that are here? Um, do you think those should be donated abroad or used in like these vaccine deserts you guys are talking about or what should be done with those? That's a great question. I mean, I'll just add that one of the things that we're optimistic about is that we'll likely learn soon that the vaccines are shelf stable. So these expiration dates that were initially set in the midst of an emergency use authorization created a very short window for their usage. Um, but as we gain more data, I think we're gonna see a change in that policy. And so what is interesting is that different companies have taken a different policy regarding labeling of the packaging. So some of the companies have decided to label the package with expiration date printed Others have put a QR code that you call to learn about the expiration date. And we're actually hoping that small tweak in a product packaging enables us to, in a sense, change the shelf life as these policies change. Yeah, I think, you know, clearly it would be great to extend the shelf life of the J&J &J vaccine. I do think, Austin, it's a good question because we have been monitoring confidence around each of the different vaccines. We, ha we have a partnership with SurveyMonkey where we're looking at willingness to take uh, each of the vaccine among those that are unvaccinated. 
And unfortunately, what happened um, when J&J was paused was a real drop, a massive drop in confidence around that vaccine. And unfortunately, it has not fully recovered. So we do have a, a, this struggle of a lot of supply of a vaccine that is an effective and, and really valuable vaccine, especially as you think about hard to reach populations where there's potential loss of being able to get their second dose. Um, so there is a struggle now where we have a supply, we have an effective vaccine, but potentially not a huge amount of confidence in this particular shot. And so we need to do a lot more work to figure out how to educate people that, you know, this is an incredibly safe vaccine and, and, and worthwhile for, you know, and, and worthwhile for, uh, you know, those who are yet to be vaccinated. I have a quick question there. So you said that um, with the pause, the J&J vaccine lost, uh, a lot of people lost confidence in it. Who were those people? Are they the people who are going to be receiving the shot or are they the healthcare leaders uh, that were distributing them or the, like the politicians who, who lost confidence? Oh, it's, it's um, so we survey through SurveyMonkey, we survey a representative sample of, of the U.S. population and um, we essentially found that, you know, so across all demographics, we saw there was a drop in confidence. Uh, that was specifically uh, among women, um, and Ben can correct me on the exact age range because I can't remember, but specifically in women, the drop was even more significant, but it, it was actually across the board, across all, all demographics that we surveyed that we saw this drop in, in, in sort of intent to get the J&J vaccine. I have a question about the tool. When you put the tool together and you were kind of going through the results of what came up on the tool, were there spots that were a surprise to you about that they were a, a desert or that they were not a desert for vaccines? Were there any geographical locations that really stood out to you? Um, well, I'll mention uh, what I found striking was that there were so many primary care providers that could alleviate the desert. Um, so we think about the initial messaging regarding this vaccine was that it required specialized storage, it requires specialized dilution, the complexity of administration of an mRNA vaccine really gave many primary care providers were not involved in the early rollout. And now we know this can be stored in a fridge for one month to three months, the instructions to dilution. So it is much more accessible for a single provider, the family medicine doc who's sitting in one of these vaccine deserts to begin thinking about its deployment and not be worried about wastage. So it's exciting for us, to be honest, every time one of those red dots lit up in a desert, this is whom we should be doing outreach to. And we just got that feedback from the head of uh, vaccine distribution in Tennessee. She was about to Google <laughs> and look for providers um, in um, areas that she thought and estimated were vaccine deserts. And she immediately used the tool yesterday and began calling those providers that lit up on the tool. Great. Um, anybody else want to contribute to that? Or otherwise, we have a question, too. We'll just go to the question. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I did want to sort of follow up on that. Um, in the areas where there is a lower uptick, um, you know, we've been sort of reporting that it's some southern states or, um, you know, uh, and kind of matching um, areas of, of voting patterns with um, uptick. Is it a matter of um, refusing hesitancy or is it a matter of um, a state infrastructure not being um, you know, adequate to 
handle that initial need when you know states were so involved in um, vaccine distribution. Mm -hmm. I'll, I can take a stab and then others can jump in. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And, and fortunately, I think the answer to your question is it's not clear cut, it's multifactorial. I think that there's this intersection of, of issues around access and confidence and they the combination is what sort of leads to lack of sort of immunization. So if you have your place, you're in a vaccine desert, you have to drive 30 minutes to get a vaccine, you're on the fence about it, that's that, that's a situation which you're not likely to get immunized. If you happen to like have a vaccine clinic within a couple minutes of you and it's easy and it makes sense and doesn't require a huge amount of time off work, um, that becomes much more palatable. And so I do think, you know, we've been working on this issue, you know, since we started the vaccine finder project for COVID, we've been trying to analyze these vaccine deserts and have been pointing out these issues of, of access and how they line up with certain types of demographics. And you're right, they do, there's, there's an intersection between, you know, because we, we work with um, data from Facebook around vaccine confidence, and clearly there's strong overlap. Deserts also happen to be places, some at least happen to be places where there's low confidence in the vaccine, but that's not always the case. There are plenty of places where there's a lot of people that are in the, I'll, you know, will get vaccinated category, but structurally they're just not in a, you know, it's not in a position to get the vaccine. So the more that we can increase that sort of convenience, the, the more likely we'll sort of push people into the get vaccinated camp. And just to add to John's point, I mean, one of the things that's been clear for large employers is the incentive of paid time off. So we've communicated as providers and I currently vaccinate folks, people are very concerned about the side effects after that second dose and if they'll have to take time off. And so what we know is it's about 20% of employed unvaccinated adults would be more likely to get the vaccine if their employer gave them that time off um, to recover from their side effects. And that in and of, in and of itself may be an incentive. Um, and then the second, which we know is, you know, a significant amount of Americans are actually waiting for full FDA approval of the vaccine before getting it. The difficulty is the risk of being unvaccinated today is significant. <laughs> um, and how do we communicate both to those who are waiting for the full FDA approval? Um, I actually wanted to ask you about that because that just struck me as so uh, when I read that with the, the, the Kaiser um, monitor had that same data. Um, is that just yet another excuse? I mean, in other words, we've, we've seen how vaccine hesitancy has kind of morphed from issues of, you know, granola, people who don't like to put weird things in their bodies to, you know, the libertarian points of view. and. And so I just wondered, like, is there a way to get at, is that an actual, is that an actual concern? Like, how do you know that? Or, you know, and, and then I also wanted to kind of on that line, um, what is different about this vaccine hesitancy um, and, and the deserts and, you know, the, the uptick compared to um, what we typically have known about vaccine deniers or refusers? What, What's different? That, that is a great question. I'll start, but give a partial answer. <laughs> Glad there's other folks on the call. Um, so, I mean, first, just as a vaccinator, I would say that most folks are coming with a degree of uncertainty. 
This is in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic where people have not had access to their providers or they've had to establish via telemedicine, um, a caregiving relationship with someone new or had difficulty accessing um, providers in person. So I noticed just the sense of stress that the folks come to the vaccination site with, the sense of relief they gain when they begin the vaccination process. But I agree with many of the questions folks are asking. They're, they wanna begin a conversation about what does this mean to get an injection of a dose of a vaccine um, under an EUA. That, these are all new terminology to the American public. Um, this is not like a routine vaccine that you receive yearly, the flu vaccine, um, or obviously the childhood immunization schedule. So um, I think in many ways, what you know, we need to continue doing is to ensure that providers can have those conversations. This is about your preventative health, reestablishing um, and maintaining your health and wellness in the midst of the pandemic. And the vaccine is one of those tools and a bridge back um, to a healthier, more resilient self. And the second is, I think is, was quite clear is that this became a very politicized moment. Operation Warp Speed, the terminology that we use, the terminology of emergency use authorization. These are not terms I normally use as a provider with my patients. <laughs> um, and so this has become very public, um, the approval process, but I understand why Americans are asking these questions. And I think um, what has been clear from the survey data is having a discussion with a trusted provider helps alleviate the stress, engage folks in not only the vaccine, but in reestablishing care. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a really good question. I think, you know, the, the diagram around people who say uh, are willing to get the flu shot, but not the COVID vaccine, and then those are willing to get the COVID vaccine and the flu shot, there, there are groups in those categories. And I think, of course, there's going to be the underlying sort of vaccine deniers that, you know, don't want it for any, in any circumstance. But I think what you'll see is there, there are different groups, right? There are plenty of people who just don't want to get the flu shot, but have been convinced that the COVID vaccine is our ticket to getting to the other end of this pandemic. And then there's plenty of people that get the flu shot who feel like it's been studied for years, but are really concerned about the fast time frame in which the vaccines got emergency authorization and, and really want to wait and see. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's absolutely not a perfect overlap. And I think there's, you know, of course, all the, the incentives to get on board with the COVID vaccine, which do not exist with, you know, your annual flu shot, clearly have made a difference. We have seen that it's made a difference because we, we look at sort of the analytics uh, around, um, around vaccines.gov that we run, and we can see sort of the, the upticks that you get with all the range of incentives, whether it's the lotteries or, you know, the very, you know, or even ma mask mandates changing. Um, so clearly that is driving people to, to get this vaccine where, you know, potentially they would never have gone a flu shot. So it, it's absolutely interesting to look at sort of the differences in populations, but most importantly to understand that to sort of, you know, figure out who to target to, to get on board. Uh, yeah, and I may join in uh, to kind of talk about like the, the hesitancy versus the deserts that you asked about. Uh, and this is something Google has been thinking a lot about. Uh, in addition to this data set on uh, access to vaccines, we are also going to release uh, data soon on search trends and volume of searches around vaccines in general, intent to get vaccinated and safety and side effects to better understand these concerns in the communities. Um, and yeah, we, we'd love to be follow up with you and share more information if you're interested. 
Thank you. Um, I see while we're waiting for somebody to raise a hand, I had a couple more questions as well. Um, so we've been hearing more and more about the Delta variant and how it could be more uh, easily, uh, more transmissible and also have severe outcomes than other variants. Um, how important, keeping that variant in mind, how important is it to eliminate these deserts at this point in the pandemic? Yeah, um, happy to jump in there. Uh, yeah, so exactly. I think this concern about the Delta variant and we're seeing in the UK, you know, a slight rise in cases, even among, you know, highly immunized population, mostly because it's, you know, it's spreading among those who are unvaccinated, slightly younger populations. And in fact, what we're seeing is, you know, you know, increased severity uh, of infection. So that combination of increased transmissibility, transmissibility and severity is concerning. Um, and that, you know, we have what, about 6% of, of uh, isolates are Delta variant at this point here in the US that is likely to continue. And that, that variant will find the pockets of unvaccinated uh, individuals and those populations you know, we can't look at the U.S. as a homogeneous estimate of vaccine uptake. It is all about sort of pockets of transmission. And if you have large, you know, or even small populations across the U.S. that are under vaccinated, we know that there are plenty of communities that are sub 30 percent having that first shot. Um, the Delta variant will take hold. And as you know, we also found out that the single shot, um, you know, was not as effective as getting the full sort of two dose two doses of Pfizer. And so, you know, that concern, you know, that is very concerning for what we might see heading into to later in the summer and fall, as we might expect, you know, even a small surge that will impact again, um, what we think the deserts, of course, line up with the most vulnerable populations who have limited access to healthcare disadvantage. So it, it's not a great uh, combination of having a variant that will impact sort of the most uh, vulnerable uh, of the country. So this is why, you know, again, we've, we've been pushing this idea of how do you fill in these gaps in these critical deserts around the country. Okay. Um, I then had another question about, uh, we were talking earlier about global distribution. Is, is it possible to expand the tool from uh, US to other countries as well? Is a it, is it framework that's uh, underpinning all of this a little more, is it flexible to be expanded to other areas? Absolutely. And this is, we're on the phone and on Zoom constantly about, so we built the infrastructure for this. You're absolutely right. So this could serve any country trying to deploy a scarce resource. And what we think about it, this public health strategies need to when you face scarcity, and then as supply is dynamic and changes, um, how you need to rethink through your allocation and distribution. And we're very eager to continue working as a, a tripartite partnership um, to think about whom else we could serve with this example tool. Okay. Um, um, any other comments on that? Hi, um, I just had two quick follow-up questions. Um, Dr. Orangebaum, you, you mentioned um, you had spotted a red dot and then you called someone. Who, who are you reaching out to? Like who, who um, what's the, uh, how does this thing get put into action? Sure. Oh, absolutely. So, um, well, we've, I mean, collectively, we've all had relationships with state and local public leaders throughout the pandemic. Um, so, for example, yesterday, I started with a phone call at eight in the morning with Tennessee. So, Dr. 
Um, Michelle Fiscus, who runs their vaccine deployment, we demoed the tool with her. She immediately had her team stop what they were doing because um, they were going to do the type of spreadsheet analysis to use the tool and redeploy the tool to organize the day. I spoke with her again this morning. Um, she wanted to go over the tool again to kind of help prepare her team for deployment. Um, and then we'll be sending out a significant emailing to all of the jurisdictions um, this afternoon. Uh, the Commonwealth Fund has also sent it to the, all of the state policy and outreach um, organizations. Um, and we'll present this to the Association of Immunization Managers um, later this week. So um, we have had this experience before where we think about what is the homework that all the jurisdictions need to do? <laughs> and can our collective brain trust here between John's team, the Vaccine Finder, Google Health's team, you know, what are the pieces that we can layer on to help that public health leader truly be the spokesperson and localize the strategies for the needs that they're facing. John, okay. I'll pass the baton to you. No, I, I think you got it. I think, Amy, did you have a second question? Um, yeah, uh, so uh, you, were, you were specifically saying that, that was, there was one person who was saying, oh, I'm gonna contact these doctors. Um, was that in Tennessee or? That's correct, yeah. So okay. just take that as an example use case. Yeah. So okay. then, leverage the tool yesterday to call certain physicians to replan her outreach um, of surrounding areas in Memphis as an example. Great. Um, yeah, and I, I don't, you may have answered this, but I, I don't know if I heard this. Um, uh, um, what, do we know the data for um, Johnson & Johnson and the one shot with the Delta variant, given what we know about AstraZeneca? It's a good question. It's definitely information that I'm looking for. I don't think we do. I haven't seen any data or at least, you know, solid data to support it. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely something we are, we we're looking forward to hearing about. So no, I don't know if Rebecca, have you seen anything or I, I, I no. I think it's too early to know. Um, I, are there any other questions out there? If not, um, do you have any other final thoughts before we go to our speakers? I, do, I, want to, I want to share that the actual data itself underlying this will be updated frequently. So you'll see there's a date in the top right corner of the screen. So as folks are thinking about taking a screenshot, for example, or using the visuals, um, that date should help. Um, and also folks are, you know, have feedback for us or they're trying to think through, how can I visualize this for the public, um, please to help. Yeah, I, I just, I'll add the same thing that, you know, our team, um, if there's specific visuals or data or case studies that you guys are looking at um, that could help reinforce, you know, even other stories that you guys are working on, just let us know and we're, we're happy to support on the data front in any way. Uh, Monty, did you have anything you would like to say? Yeah, I just wanted to also call out that uh, we, uh, you know, we think it is important to show data. One of the things that we did with this tool and with our data was to show uh, data travel times for all modes, like, you know, whether people are driving or walking or using public transit, because we know that there are many populations who need access to vaccines, but don't have access to a car and need to utilize public transportation. And so it was really important for us to also uh, bring that aspect to this tool. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that as well. This concludes the June 10th press conference.